die. You and I are going to die because, you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years, in one of two places. Morning, church. A little old school voice of Billy Graham there for you. So this morning we are starting a new series titled Heaven and Hell. What we're gonna do over the next several weeks is we're gonna open up our Bibles and we're gonna discover just exactly how the scriptures answer that question. What happens when you die? It's gonna get every single one of us inescapable. When you're young, you think you're immortal. You don't think about your death that often unless someone close to you dies, and then you're kind of slapped in the face with it. As the decades roll up in your life, you certainly begin to think about what's next? What's next? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus himself, he spent a lot of time talking about the afterlife, and for good reason. Everybody on the planet, most everybody, believes in life after death. Most everybody on the planet still believes that there is a God. So, putting all that together, What's the answer? How do we know? Well, Jesus answered the question very often in the form of a parable. A parable is a short story that packs a punch, a very profound punch. Jesus gets you to think about what's really important with just like five minutes worth of an explanation, five minutes worth of a, of a journey. And he was the master at it. Nobody better than Jesus at sharing these stories. And so that's where we're gonna begin. Now, you're gonna have a lot of questions. It's like I do. I would encourage you to hold off on the questions until we get more toward the end of the series because one will build on another. It's impossible to answer every question, obviously, in one message. And then the other thing I, I, I wanna let you know that I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna to try to address some of the more common objections or some of the things that people end up struggling with. And I'll, I'll work, we're gonna do some of that even this morning. And um, it's not a light topic. But if we put ourselves under the authority of the scriptures, then we wanna understand what it has to say. And some of us have been walking this Christian life long enough to realize that it does contain truth, profound truths. Not always easy to receive, but even with these topics, especially the, the topic of an, an everlasting existence apart from God, you come to understand that that actually can become a purifying truth in your life. Because what you do today does affect your eternal destination. So let me give you the backdrop against which Jesus shares this parable. It's found in Luke chapter 16. So Jesus has been teaching and preaching. Not everybody is quick to receive his words. There are those in the crowd that hate Jesus. They hate what he says, they hate what he does. They don't like the people that he's been hanging out with. Primarily these people are known as the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They hated Jesus so much that eventually they sought to have him killed and they were successful in having him delivered up to be crucified. 
They didn't like what he had to say about them in particular because he kept pointing out their hypocrisy. In fact, at one point, he actually says, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, essentially you're rotten. You're hypocrites. You practice one thing, but you preach something else. At one point, he actually says, you devour the homes of widows. In particular, they love the applause of people, and they live their lives for that. They also love their places of position and privilege, and what came with that was wealth. And so Jesus has just laid down this real simple principle he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have two ultimate masters in your life. You're gonna have to pick one or the other. And, and he's right, you know this to be true because if you love God, then you will use money to do just that. You will use money to bless people, to advance the kingdom of God. You will use money as a way of loving God. But if you love money, then you will end up using people. <laughs> you will become greedy and self-centered. You will absorb what you have on yourself. So you can't serve these two masters. Well, upon hearing this teaching, the religious leaders immediately respond. In Luke chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they mocked Jesus. So Jesus replies, you are those who justify yourselves in front of other people. You find justification for all that you do, which is wrong, by receiving the accolades, the affirmations from people. But God, sees directly into your heart. The heart was the seat of intellect, emotion, and will, volition. It, was, it described who you really are to the Jews. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wrong audience, he says. You're appealing to the wrong audience, you religious people. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, you quickly realize that God uses the lowly and the humble to accomplish his greater purposes. The great patriarch Moses, when he was 40 years old, he would have been the envy of everyone around him. He had wealth, he had influence, he had it all. And then in an instant, he makes a decision that causes him to leave all of that behind. It's a humbling moment. He's in the wilderness for 40 years in total obscurity. Nobody knows about him. Everybody wants to distance themselves from him. Used to want to be him, now they want to have nothing to do with him. He's, he has this like wilderness type experience for 40 years. He's 80 years old. And then he encounters this bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And the voice of God speaks to him and he says, hey, you 80 year old man, guess what? Now's your time, now's your time. 
there's a couple of, of different attitudes that people portray, Christians portray. The first attitude is, God would certainly want to use someone like me. Why would he not? Second attitude is, why would God want to use someone like me? When there's less of you, there can be more of God. And this is always the way that God has worked, but the Pharisees were so full of themselves, there was no space for God. In fact, Jesus would say, you think you know God? You're clueless. You are the furthest thing from God. And they weren't having it. They ridiculed him, delivered him up to be crucified. Now, the Pharisees were using wealth as a way to get people's attention. Jesus says, remember, the world may look at you and think, wow, success, wealth, privilege. That's where it's at. And Jesus says, those things are abomination to God. Four verses later, he launches into this parable, illustrating this point by talking about two men who die. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. I'm gonna read the whole parable, then we'll back off and we'll make some observations. So, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And he, he desired just to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, that great patriarch Abraham, the one that started it all for the Jews, the nation of Israel, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and there's Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner Oh, no, that guy received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. The rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have their Bibles. That's essentially what he's saying. They have Moses, the words of Moses, and they have the prophets. See, he's talking about the Old Testament. That was the Bible in Jesus' day, and the prophets forewarned of a coming judgment, and so the response is, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They just let them hear them. Let them read what they say. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, like if someone comes back from the dead, wouldn't that be enough? Yeah, surely they'll listen to a resurrected individual. Then they'll repent. 
He said to him, well, if, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, then neither will, be, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is some serious foreshadowing on the part of Jesus. So the parable begins with, there was a certain rich man. It is not wrong to be wealthy. The Bible doesn't condemn riches. The Bible does condemn those who absorb wealth on themselves. Why does God give you what you have? Well, in part to supply what you need, but then also so that you can take it and be a blessing to those who are in need. So the Bible doesn't condemn wealth. The Bible condemns absorbing all your wealth on yourself. This guy has all of the things that indicate wealth. He's dressed in purple. So you might know that purple was a very expensive dye to acquire. It came from these tiny little snails that lived in the Mediterranean. And it took loads and loads of these little snails to get just a small amount of purple dye. Very labor intensive. That's why it was so expensive. So this guy's decked out in purple. So immediately when you see him, you're like, oh, this guy has some funds. And he's eating well. His meals are sumptuous. Outwardly speaking, he has all the things that the world would desire and praise. Now what's interesting is that very often in parables, you don't get any name. There's no names. And I think in part that's so that you can kind of draw yourself into the parable. So you would expect the rich man to be named, but we don't get his name. He remains nameless, but we do get the name of the poor man, Lazarus. And interestingly, the name Lazarus literally means one who God helps. Now, Lazarus' condition is the exact opposite of the rich guy. He's a poor beggar. You can just imagine what he looked like in contrast to the appearance of the rich man. And his stomach is constantly in need. He's constantly living with hunger pains. And it's his desire just to eat the stuff that falls on the ground from the rich man's table. Additionally, he has these sores. Back in the days, you could take care of the sores through salves and creams. He doesn't have that. He can't afford that. And so the dogs lick his wounds. This guy is in rough shape. Now, here's what you need to know. The Pharisees believed, as many people back in the day, that if you had stuff, if you had wealth, if you had possessions and you were being blessed by God. And if you were poor or even disabled, God was cursing you. This is why there's that moment where the disciples of Jesus roll up on a man and he's blind and they say, hey Jesus, we have a theological question for you. Because this guy's blind, clearly somebody did something wrong. God cursed him. Now, is it his fault or did his parents do something wrong and God is cursing them by making their child blind? Who did something wrong? See, that was, see this, this parable clears up a lot of really bad theology. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. You see, this man is blind so that the power of God can be revealed through him. Watch. 
your sight is restored. Everybody's like, whoa, okay, Jesus just got some street cred immediately. That's why that guy was born blind, so that the power of God could be revealed. So they had some really messed up theology. So Jesus is so good. I would love to just go back in time, be a fly on the wall, and see the faces of those who subscribe to this idea that blessing equals riches. Because Jesus, in one sentence, demolishes all of that when he says they die. They both die. And everybody's expecting the rich guy to be in a better place. And instead, he's in a place of torment. And the poor man is in a place of comfort. And everybody's like, wait, what? Wait, what's going on? Now, to further complicate things, uh, this rich man is Jewish. We'll talk more about that in a second. But this, this poor guy is precisely the kind of guy that the Pharisees would look at and go, sinner, cursed by God, worthy of being separated from God for all eternity. And now in death, these two men are once again in close proximity. But the judgment has gone the other way. Their destiny is not what anybody expects, and it's the exact opposite of how they both lived while on the earth. And with just one sentence, Jesus says, your judgment according to appearances in this life are dead wrong. Only upon death will it be revealed. From a heavenly viewpoint, friends, things are decidedly different on this planet. From a heavenly point of view, the things of this world and what man praises are decidedly different in the life to come. That's a tough one to, to wrap your mind and heart around. Now, because this parable is told to an, an Israelite from, a, from an Old Testament point of view, it helps us understand these two different places, all right? So let's dig into this a little bit. So the place where, where Lazarus is is described as Abraham's bosom. So perhaps you've thought, well, once you die, you know, don't you immediately go to heaven, like the heaven that, that people maybe normally think about where there are streets of gold and there are these big gates, and there's a new, new city, new heavenly Jerusalem that comes down, and there's a tree of life, and there's this beautiful, it's a recreation of the Garden of Eden, but in its most perfect state. Don't we go there upon death? Well, what's interesting is that this isn't the place that Jesus describes, at least in this parable. At one point, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. What that tells me is, it's not yet ready. Okay? So when you think of that, the streets of gold and the new heavens and new earth, all that, that is yet to come. And what this parable suggests to me is that between now and the completion of that place that Jesus went to prepare, he said, I'm gonna prepare it, then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you with me. What happens in that intermediate state? Perhaps this is it. There's this place called Abraham's bosom. It is still a place of comfort and joy, but not quite the heavenly existence that we read that Jesus goes and prepares. So it would appear to me, it would suggest to me that these two places in this parable, Hades 
this place of torment, and Abraham's bosom, this, this place that is, is like heaven, they, they do each have their eternal counterpart, heaven and hell. These places have a fascinating description in this parable. Uh, and at the same time, when I say fascinating, what I mean is one is quite horrifying, if we're to be honest, okay? From this place of torment, the rich man addresses Abraham as father. He says, Father Abraham. And, and as he says this, as Jesus is relating this story, I can once again see the, the faces of these religious leaders and, and they're just, they're grimacing. Because another sure way to be with God for eternity was to have the right pedigree, to have the right blood flowing through your veins and that is to be Jewish, to be a member of the nation of Israel. If you were part of Abraham by blood, you were in, period. And this guy's not in. So Jesus is just absolutely messing with the way people think they get to heaven in his time and in ours, by the way. He's totally messing with people. So they can't believe this. They can't believe that this guy would. Ancient rabbis had this belief. They believed that Abraham, the great patriarch, his job was to sit at the gates of heaven, kind of a gnarly job, and inspect every male that entered or that wanted to enter the gates, inspect every male to make sure that he was circumcised. Because that was the sign of covenant. That was the sign of your Jewishness. And that's what it took. That was essential in order to gain favor with God. And Jesus just, he explodes all of that. So their, their heads, their heads are, are spinning. This poor man now is in Abraham's bosom. A lot of discussion about what this is. Is it figurative, is it literal? I think that we get somewhat of a clue in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, and I say to you that many shall come from east and west and, and they will recline at table with Abraham. This is a posture of eating, like a banquet. They're gonna recline with Abraham. And they'll be there with Isaac and Jacob, all the great patriarchs. Well, where is this gonna take place? He tells you, in the kingdom of God. So Lazarus is, is presented in this kind of a posture. When you, when you eat, you're reclining at the table and, and the table is low and you're, you're using your hand, you're eating with your hand, you're feeding yourself and you're not gonna recline like this and have someone's feet next to you. So you're, you're in this position and then the person who's eating next to you is like this, so their feet aren't right next to your head. So this is how the way that people postured up. And so your torso is next to this person. So you're, you're reclining with them at the table. And to be at the table is a sign of friendship and hospitality and joy and all these things. And, and so it, it's, there's this beautiful picture of Lazarus being where every good Jew wants to be. Abraham's table. Now, you would think that the majority of the parable would flesh this out and you'd get all these amazing details, but you don't. Actually, what you get in the rest of the parable are these two questions, two statements, two commands, really, on the part of the rich man. And both of these requests are denied. We'll get to that in a second. Now, what's also interesting about this place where the rich man is, Hades, 
He can see what's happening with Lazarus. And it's almost like there's a one-way mirror where the wicked, right, those who have deserved what they've gotten, they can see out and they see people enjoying, but the people that are at Abraham's bosom can't see them. So that's kind of, that's, kind of, that's also that messes with you because there's this ongoing existence where part of the struggle is that you are able to see other people and, and their happiness. And then we're told there's this big chasm between the two places that can't be crossed over. And in light of this, the rich man is like, hey, Abraham, Will you tell Lazarus to give me some relief? And what is he doing? Even in a place of torment, he still has the mentality, I'm better than Lazarus. Go tell Lazarus to make me happy. Go tell Lazarus to give me some relief. He's less than me. See, one of the difficult questions that people ask is this. How could God, in his justice, and fairness, punish people for all eternity for sins done temporarily? Fair question. It's a good question. What this parable teaches is that the wickedness is ongoing. (laughs) They continue to rebel against God. They continue to sin, even in this place of torment. That's, That's, see, that's what sin does to you. It, it makes you completely and totally unaware of yourself. You become very, very unaware of who you are, what you've become, and that it seems to be carried with this rich man, even in this place of torment. And so he's told, no, that's not gonna happen, and that can't happen because he can't go from here to there, and plus the judgment of God doesn't allow for that as well. Um, and so then he says, okay, okay, okay. Then, second time, he says, go tell Lazarus to warn my family that this place exists. And the response is, no, they have been warned. If they would, watch this now, this is what he's saying, essentially, if they would read their Bibles, they would know of a forthcoming judgment that they could escape. They would know that God is just they would know that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to say, you gotta turn back, people. This isn't gonna be good for you. Turn back. You're jacking up yourselves. You're jacking up the world. This is a big problem. You better turn back. You better turn back. And what do they do with the prophets? They killed them. And so he says, well, well, if someone comes back from the dead, certainly that'll be the street cred. People will listen. No. And that, can't, that turned out to be true because the religious leaders upon Jesus' resurrection couldn't deny that that the tomb was empty. So what did they do? They said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna lie about it. We're gonna cover this whole thing up, okay? They couldn't deny. You think at that point, this is how hard-headed people are. You think at that point they would bow their knees and bend their heart and go, okay, he wins, surrender. (laughs) It's a pretty good act coming back from the dead. He comes back from the dead. That's the exclamation mark, and they don't believe. So. 
Abraham was right. Even if someone comes back from the dead, they're still not gonna believe. That's, that is as much a statement about the human heart as anything. So justice does not allow Abraham to diminish the rich man's suffering. And, and there's, this, this, um, there's this sobering realization that there's no relief for him and that the choices he made before death remain after death. even in his protest. So, what can be said? Clearly, this parable teaches that there is life after death, that there are two places that exist. One, of enjoyment and bliss and peace, one of affliction, extreme affliction. It would suggest, we'll get more into this in the weeks to come, because we'll talk more about annihilationism and we'll get into some of the details of that. But this parable suggests that it is an ongoing place of joy and an ongoing place of torment. Why does this have to be a thing? That's why I began by saying, human nature is such that we do require truth that motivates. That's why I said this is a purifying truth. And I'm gonna say it today, and you're gonna hear me say it a number of times, and I love what R.C. Sproul said. He says, we have to preach hell. Hades. Jesus uses the word Gehenna. We'll talk about that next week. And every time we do, we preach it with a tear in our eye. You know what I'm saying? We preach hell because it's in the Bible. And every time we do, we preach it with a tear in our eye. It serves as a purifying truth to know that what we do now does have consequences out into the future not only for ourselves, but for those that we care about. So this is why when people say, man, do you Christians have to be so vocal about what you believe? Yeah, you better. It's the most loving thing you can do to transfer people from death to life. Make no apologies for that. That's why Paul, as he starts in Romans, we're gonna get to Romans in the fall. Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then he tells you why. Because it has the power to save. You you cannot fully appreciate your salvation unless you know what you have been saved from. You understand? You cannot fully appreciate your salvation unless you know what you've been saved from. That is yet another one of many reasons for the existence of hell. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. There's an old obscure hymn that I was made aware of. I never knew it existed. You, chances are you probably haven't heard of it either. The title is this, Lay Your Deadly Doings Down. Lay Your Deadly Doings Down. Let me explain what that means. In Jesus' day, primary belief was that if we did all the right things, God would throw open the gates of heaven for us. 
Lay your deadly doings down. In our own day, I'm telling you, if you ask most people on this planet, if you believe in heaven, yeah, you believe in God, how do you get there? Just be good, be good, let your good outweigh your bad. Lay your deadly doing down, down at the feet of Jesus. If you can get to God by being good, then there's no reason for the cross. And so this is why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this is just one of those parables where it's so easy for me to say, what is the Spirit of God saying to you? It definitely something. The worship team is gonna lead us through that hymn. I would encourage you just to contemplate the words. And then when it's over, I'm gonna come up, I'm gonna lead us through communion because that's a celebration. That's what Christians celebrated death. How can that be? Because it's through the death of Jesus that gives us life. Through the death of Jesus, we understand what we've been rescued from. So Father, as we enter into this space, just pray that your spirit would speak loudly to every heart in the room. And when things need to be confronted, God, just pray that we would lean into it. Because there's something, there's something for each one of us to to deal with, to change, to bring before you for our own good. Really difficult to, to pull those roots out because we find, we find identity, we find satisfaction, we find happiness in them. At least we think we do. Jesus, you said, give up anything in my name, I'll give it to you a hundredfold. Well, maybe we should test you in that. Father, speak to us now in this time, we pray for your glory. Amen.